Not sure whether you've ever tried improv before, but today's guest shares what are probably some of life's greatest lessons that she learned from the improv stage. Things like saying yes, and then in amongst the mess and the unknown, figuring it out along the way. And of course, the art of working with others. For her, that was always in the name of chasing the laughs. I'm Alec Hill and welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. Comedian Cal Wilson came across the Tasman from Christchurch in 2013 and has gone on to become one of our most popular and much-loved comedians. Her work has seen her on some of our favourite TV shows such as Spicks and Specs, Good News Week, Thank God You're Here and more recently Would I Lie to You, Have You Been Paying Attention and Husey, We Have a Problem. Despite her great aversion to the great outdoors, Cal bravely joined the cast of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here in 2022, which saw her take on all the usual hair-raising challenges and a biblical amount of bugs that the series has to offer. For her, she believes that unprecedented times call for unprecedented adventures and at the very least, some pretty good TV material. Cal is a gifted storyteller and writer. And this year, she was invited to join the writing team for the 2022 BAFTA Awards ceremony. And she shares with us in this episode just what it was like working along some of the other writers and writing for Rebel Wilson. This year in 2022, Cal continues her national tour where she will be performing at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. She has a brand new show called I've Gone to a Lot of Trouble. And we'll be taking this show on the road, not only to Melbourne, but also to Brisbane. This episode is filled with insights around kindness, generosity, saying yes, and figuring it out along the way. So soak up the wisdom because, well, let's just say she's gone to a lot of trouble. Please enjoy this conversation with Cal Wilson. Cal, welcome. It's such a delight to be connecting with you. Oh, thanks for having me. You've recently just performed at the Adelaide Festival and maybe for the young listeners or for a few people where their memory might be fading them, a festival is this thing where we get out of our house and we, we gather with groups of people and we go to things called shows. <laughs> what was it like being yeah, back it's, it's, at a festival? It was amazing. It was weird and wonderful and weird. So Adelaide also, I think, because they got off really lightly with lockdowns and things, I think people had a more casual attitude to masks and things like that. And the Victorians amongst us, of which I'm one, found that really bizarre. Like I think we we were all kind of trained to, you don't go out and you just put your mask on and you don't breathe on anyone and crowds are weird. But it was amazing. It felt like a return to the old days except just more face coverings. Like the the audience. Oh, actually, one thing I did notice is that audiences are more chatty because I think we've spent two years at home on the couch just discussing TV with each other. And so when you go back to a live gig, you kind of still feel like you're in your lounge room and you want to go, oh, yeah, Sarah did that as well. Like you, I think people are still in the mode of we're at home and we can just say what we like, but <laughs> but you're at a show. <laughs> We've got to learn the nuances of uh, social nuances all, all over yeah. again. <laughs> I can definitely it relate does feel to like that. The, I, don't go for it. Sorry. 
I ran into a friend at the supermarket in one of our big lockdowns and we couldn't talk to each other because we weren't ready to see a friend on the street. Like it was such a weird thing of going, oh, we haven't made a time to talk on Zoom or we haven't been texting. It was just we really had difficulty actually talking to each other. So we kind of was like, we'll just make an appointment and we'll catch up on Zoom. It was too confronting face to face. (laughs) It's almost that sense of looking down going, yep, I've got pants on, I'm outside, (laughs) this is okay. (laughs) Yeah. Am I I visually, visibly muttering? Can people see that I'm muttering? Because that's gone way up over the pandemic, just lots of muttering. Comedy is often a, a two-way street and you build and grow with the audience. What have you missed most of not being in front of an audience across the last couple of years? That feeling of connection that there's nothing like being in a room full of people and you're all sharing the laughter about the same thing. You know, like it's like when when you're with a group of friends and someone cracks a joke and you all laugh and it, you, it's a really intimate feeling when you're all connected by laughter and I have missed that of just sharing some joy with people. I can imagine there's there's an energy that comes back to you as well. So you were born in... Christchurch in New Zealand. What was life like growing up in Christchurch? It was very ordinary, I think. And not not in the Australian way of ordinary meaning terrible. It was just quite an ordinary childhood. I had two older brothers. My mum was a school teacher. My dad worked for the council. I sort of always knew I wanted to be a performer, but I didn't know how that was going to happen. I think I I, well, I thought I'd end up being a nurse or a teacher because I think that's what I thought women did. Was that expression and performance always a part of who you were growing up? Was there role models around you or was that more just kind of innate for you? I think there's the sort of two factors to it. One is that I was the youngest of three and I don't think my brothers and I exchanged a civil word until I was about 21. So we were always fighting and you know, I wanted their attention because I adored them, but I was the painful little sister. And I sort of learnt that I couldn't beat them physically, but I could get them with words. Like, So I think I developed a really quick wit because of that, because of kind of just wanting to hold my own. But also my family are storytellers. So on my dad's side, it just ta- I used to call it tag team monologue. Like it just everyone on my dad's side tells stories that go on forever. And I've just turned that into a job. But I have always loved to entertain people. Did you find that um, you almost had to fight for for your own monologue, for your kind of space of telling your story? I think so, maybe. I think I probably learned that you've got to get your audience early and keep them. So, you, I mean, I, I don't even remember sort of being talked over, but I do remember when all of the older adults got together that it was eye-rollingly long-winded but I, I think I learnt from my grandmother especially, who was a master of starting off one story and ending up 40 minutes later in an entirely different tangent, but then being able to bring it round to the, the beginning again and, oh, that's oh, right, it all ties together. I feel like I've learnt that as a structure for a show. Um, but I, I differ in that I – everyone knows that I'm going to be talking for an hour. They've agreed to that. They've come to my show. We're all aware that's what's going to happen. But I think with my family, everyone was just – doing a festival show all of the time for free. <laughs> Amazing to be to be immersed in that. Moving out of, I guess, uh, that experience in the family home, I, I imagine I've, and I've certainly heard stories where 
you know, you, you dived into performance and we're part of um, the local kind of drama clubs and those kinds of things. What did you love about that expression at, at a young age? I, I don't. I don't know how to explain, like if I say I just love showing off, that sounds terrible, but I really do love making people laugh and making people happy. And the the biggest influence I think on me as a performer was doing improv because improv is all about collaboration with other people. And uh, it's not like stand-up, which is a very selfish art where you, you stand on stage, you're by yourself generally, all eyes are on you, you want to get all the laughs. But with improv, you've got, say, four people on stage and they're all working together to make something wonderful happen. So bad improv is the worst thing you've ever seen and is excruciating, but but good improv, is, there's nothing like it. It's it's just a moment in time that will never be repeated. And f- with, with people working together to serve the scene, it doesn't matter who gets the laugh. So I feel like I, my ability, my ability is I'm really good at setting up stuff for other people as well as myself because for me, if the laugh is got, that's the main thing. It's the the, the outcome that we want is that that the laugh happens. And so I feel like I'm, I, I don't have as big an ego perhaps as some other comedians can because me getting the laugh is not the be all and end all. As long as it happens, that's great. Like, And, and I find that too, like I like to get stories from my audience because there's nothing I like more than standing on stage just howling at something that someone has told me in the room. Like, how great. I love that lessons from improv, the sense of collaboration of what is it that we're coming together and how do we serve the ultimate outcome, which is which is whether it's delight or a, a line or and and where's that kind of piece in the puzzle that I can I can perform. Was there a point in time where you recognised that comedy could be a career and not nursing and teaching? I mean, I gave up on nursing pretty early, terrified of blood, any kind of <laughs> injury. Um, I think I think probably when I started doing improv, I, well, I thought I wanted to be an actor, but I had no real idea of how one went about becoming an actor apart from going to drama school. And I was I auditioned and didn't get into drama school in New Zealand or Australia. But with the improv, I think when we started our company in Christchurch, it was called Scared Scriptless, or the court jesters. The show was called Scared Scriptless. It's been running for 30 years now. And I think when that started, that was when I really was like, oh, I'm I'm earning money from comedy. You can do that. And I never considered stand-up, so I didn't think I was funny that way. But when we started doing corporate events, doing improv at corporate events, our company director said, oh, we need to offer different things. So you, you, and you go and try stand-up. And so that's how I started doing that and I was terrible at it but Christchurch was very forgiving because they already knew us from the show we had a really loyal following and they hadn't seen anything better so we all kind of learnt together of how to be better at comedy I guess and yeah I think I was lucky too in that a lot of people go oh god I I will never forget my first time on stage I was so nervous or or oh god the second time I bombed or sort of things like that I was really lucky because I'd already started doing improv and I've been doing it for a few years before I started stand-up so I already had a an element of comfort of being on stage anyway. Is there a sense of comfort in the discomfort? I can imagine improv not having done a whole lot of it but this sense of you've got to just roll with it and sometimes it bombs but you've got to get it back or you (laughs) so this I imagine the muscle of being comfortable with the the discomfort is something that you might have grown was that the case? 
Yeah, I think so. And so I think how that serves me now is if I'm ever doing some material as a stand-up and I forget what I'm talking about, I'm quite happy to just chat until it comes back. Like I'm not scared of there being nothing there because I'm so used to, you know, running on stage with no idea of what's about to happen but knowing I have to help the scene or whatever. And, And just that idea of saying yes to things as well. So when you're presented with an idea, you say yes to it as an improviser and it st- stands you in really good stead in life as well just to go oh, I've got no idea how the hell I'm going to sort this out but sure like yep it just it's it's a great you know it's a great thing to remind myself of as well it's just to yeah just to say yes and to accept offers that come to you and even if you think I've got no idea how I'm gonna I just have no idea what I'm going to do with this like if, as long as you, you you sort of approach it with enthusiasm and throw your all at it it generally works out. I love the the sense of just say yes, but the yes might be at different pitch voices of depending on how excited or nervous I am. (laughs) (laughs) And that being a a life lesson as well. So you you came to Australia in 2003. What was the pull to Australia? Just it was the fact that the industry is bigger here and there were more opportunities and I'd come to the Melbourne Comedy Festival and just really loved it and just wanted to be in a bigger pond I think and then came over and did a show at the festival and then was offered an audition for Skit House and so I'd sort of decided I wanted to move anyway but I was going to move with no gigs or move with a job and I was really fortunate to get the job on Skit House and so I sort of came to Australia. It was like coming to uh, a new school halfway through the year but you knew all the kids because you'd been playing in the holidays so I came to this TV show where I didn't know what Australia was like but I knew the people that were doing the show because I'd you know met them at the comedy festival and yeah just it just felt like there were more opportunities here and I I was still close enough to my family that if anything happened I could get home really quickly that was always my thing of like you know if I moved to the UK I felt that was too far and then ironically now of course over the last two years I haven't just been able to pop home when I felt like it so I could have gone to the UK, but yeah, it just it felt comfortable enough to be able to move here easily, but also uncomfortable enough to be exciting. Big enough to be playing in a different different area and mm. different arena. Growing up, did you have a favourite comedian, or did you have was there a kind of a muse from a, a comedic perspective that you kind of went, look, this is someone I really admire. There were moments for me, it was sort of my last years at high school, so it was like 1988, I think, and a friend's older brother had sent back a cassette tape of Comic Relief from the UK, which was a comedy show, and it was the first time I'd heard French and Saunders, and it was the first time I'd ever heard stand-up, and it was Ben Elton doing stand-up, and it was the first time I kind of went, oh, you can do that, like you can make... You can you can just be funny in all these different ways, and I was really obsessed with the with the cassette because it was so. I mean, it was a great gig, but it also just kind of opened things up on me of going, oh, you can just talk and be funny, and you don't have to say someone else's words. Like as an actor, you you're saying other people's words, but as a comedian, you you're doing your own words. So there was that, and then there was a comedy duo called The Front Lawn, who were a duo who sang songs and did shows and just blew my mind when I went and saw them because, again, it was like, oh, you can do that. You can do whatever you want. I didn't know you could just do whatever you want. And so I I loved the joy of both of those things, and I was like, yeah, I want to do that. That's what I want. I just want to be funny. I want to make people laugh. And, and I think even then it was about connection, about I want to be 
in the room. Like I want to be in the room where everyone's laughing. I want to talk a little bit about comedy uh, as an as an industry, and I actually think it's a really important barometer in our society. It can be an outlet for talking about hard things. Uh, it can be kind of a, a, a social narrative of what's going on. Is there what are some of those maybe taboo subjects that comedy helps us to navigate better? Is there any that kind of come to mind for the work that you do, or that you've seen where seen where comedy does that really well? I think I, I think, and a lot of comedians would agree with this. There's no topic that's that can't be joked about, but you have to take into, into account if you're joking about that topic, your joke better be really great, because a lot of material that's controversial. Like, yes, you can say it, but it's, if it's not funny, it's not. What's the point of saying it? And if it's funny but it's harming someone, what are you what are you adding to the world? That's my my personal opinion. Is why wouldn't you make everyone in the room have a good time like so I don't love sort of insult comedy or um, stuff that punches down comedians talk often about you know you've got to punch up rather than punching down so you know you can talk about politicians or you can talk about stuff where the where the person that you're talking about is is definitely in a position of power and so you kind of you know the other phrase that gets kicked around is speaking truth to power which I think is great and for my personal my comedy, I've made a really conscious choice that I only want to be kind. And and that's not wishy-washy. It's just that I want everyone to walk out of the room feeling better than they did when they came in. So I don't want anyone to be sitting in my audience feeling like who they are is less than or able to be ridiculed. You know, unless you're a racist and a bigot and you're homophobic and transphobic, in which case I don't really care how you feel when you walk out. But I want, I want every every person to feel as if they're a valuable member of the audience and that we're doing something together, we're laughing together at something. And, yeah, I've made a real conscious choice to be positive about things. But, that you know, at the same time, I talk about things that are difficult, maybe like, you know, when the Me Too movement started, I had stories about that that I talked about on stage and also explaining to my son about being transgender. You know, like there are things to talk about that can be challenging, but... Ultimately, I want those things to be positive. And if I've made someone think as they leave the room or they think about a joke a couple of days later, then that's great. If, they've, if I've made someone look at something in a different way, then that's fantastic. I can imagine it is that, that line of kind of commentary and insight. And I love your perspective or intention around kindness and, and just have, having people leave feeling better as a result of it. How, how is comedy or maybe how you approach some of your shows different around the world? And it's probably more a reflection on audience or conversations. What are the things maybe that you adapt based on the, the country that you're in? Well, it always starts with names for things. Like sometimes, you know, like something like letterbox, if you're in the, if you're in the States, you'll say mailbox or like I recorded a special in Montreal and I had to check with a friend as to whether they have the word paddock like do you, do Canadians say paddock and he was like I've, I don't know I've, I don't know what a paddock is and I was like all right paddock is out like just little tiny things that you might not necessarily think about in conversation that you have to just translate for people but things like um like Kiwis and Aussies are quite self-deprecating Kiwis even more so I would say than Australians like like it's that kind of flight of the concords kind of just sort of almost shyness and 
sweetness and Australians are self-deprecating but they're a bit more sort of brash about it. So that kind of humour works really well. But in Montreal years ago, I had a, I had this conversation with someone who, who asked me, we were on the same bill. He was like, you know, how long have you been doing stand-up? And I was like, a few years. And he goes, you know, and, and are you are – you, are you, great like like sort of expecting me to tell him I was fantastic and I was like oh I'm all right and then I did my set and afterwards he's like you were great why did you say that I thought you just started like like the self-deprecation that we value here does not fly in North America because they're so good at being excited about themselves in a way that we aren't in a way that you go oh I never oh yeah well I've I've, I've, I'd never tell anyone I've won an award. Like, but in America, it's like, oh my god, you've won an award! How fantastic! So, sort of things like that. Also, uh, speaking more slowly is the other thing I have to do because I tend to wind up and and get a fair bit of speed on. And in other countries, they're like, I just, I just couldn't understand that. So, <laughs> so slowing down as well, and and also <laughs> local local references as well like I um, people love to hear about themselves and they also enjoy hearing about themselves through the eyes of an outsider so going to India we did gigs in India and so the observations that we could make that just seemed perfectly natural to someone who lives there but to an outsider is like that's really bonkers or just just things like that you kind of try and put a bit of local knowledge in and to be relatable because you want you know for me I want the audience to come with me on the you know come on let's go and play like and if they can't understand what I'm saying it's completely pointless. Talk to me about your your writing process for a stand-up piece for you know for example your show that just done at Adelaide Festival we'll be doing at the Melbourne Comedy Festival and taking up to Brisbane called I've Gone to a Lot of Trouble. What's your process? How early would you start pulling that together? Is it that you're kind of seeing things as you go and jotting them down and then pulling that together or like talk to me about your process. Um, it's exactly that. It's I used to carry a notebook with me all the time. I've got a bit slack about that, but I do voice notes. So if something happens, I um, just record it on my phone. Even if, like, I, this is ridiculous. I woke up at quarter to five this morning having had a dream about mermaids and was like, oh, it would be terrible to be a mermaid on land mermaids be tripping like just like just a ridiculous little thing but I've put it in my phone because maybe there's maybe there's a joke in there maybe there's something that I can talk about about that or you know if you have a weird interaction with someone I'll immediately write that down I'll put it in voice notes because people are weird and it's wonderful to be able to call that back up I used to write everything down word for word write everything out and then get on stage and try and remember my wording but now I'll do the notes and I might go over the notes and think of a couple of lines but then I try that on stage and I kind of write on stage more now because it's just more natural than learning things like then it's less of a piece and more of just a conversation and things happen all the time in last minute things like I stayed with Poe in Adelaide uh, after we we did I'm a Celeb together and just struck up a firm friendship. And so I decided I wanted to help out her at her store. She sells stuff on, at the Adelaide Farmer's Market on a Sunday. And just the interactions I had with people there, I've got a whole new bit out of it about just people, how people react when you call their name for their order. Like just it just blew my mind. It reminded me, oh, yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff to do about this and what I'm like when I order something from a shop, like – 
how just the difference in attitudes to people and and having a conversation with someone who's really not listening to what you're saying. So it was like all this fodder that that night I went and tried out on stage and it worked really well because I was like, oh, actually, this is something everyone can relate to. So I do have stuff written and then there's always room for more things because what what happens when you're doing a show is you might have like five minutes on um, helping poet her stall and then over the season that will get longer and longer as you think of more jokes on stage because the laughter is a reward that you want to keep getting it's like giving a dog another treat like if you get a laugh from something you're like oh what else can I say about that that's funny that I'm going to get more of a reward for so from the start of a festival season to the end of it the show can change a fair bit and you you just get better at at saying your ideas like sometimes you can do a piece of material for months and then you just say it a different way and you're like oh I've cut it all that I was saying it in a really awkward way but I've just cut it all out like sort of things keep occurring to you but weirdly the best time to write a comedy festival show is during the comedy festival which is because you're just so you're so on fire from from having the audience interaction and then you're seeing other people doing stuff and that's kind of blowing your mind or making you excited about comedy so yeah it's just it's I can't even remember the question you asked me at the start my process as a writer look at that turned into a grand it's talking and talking um yeah, so so used to used to do everything rigidly and write it all out, and now I trust myself more, and I go off little written notes, and I'll have a set list. And this is a weird thing that I've talked to lots of people about, and we all agree that the art, the act of writing something physically with a pen, makes you remember things far better than if you type something in a phone or on a laptop. Just the there's something about the physical act. I can remember stuff far better if I write it down as opposed to typing it. I don't know if you've found that with anything, but it's just the, just this weird thing. Like if I if I am doing a gig, I always write my set list out by hand, and then it's in there, and I know what's happening. But if I've typed it, I I don't have the connection. I a hundred percent agree with that. I know for me, even um, I do a lot of just kind of presenting at conferences and those sorts of things. And even if just physically writing it out makes a massive difference. And I, yeah, I agree. I think the the physicality of it and seeing it. Where do you sit on, particularly, I guess, preparing, say, for a festival season like you're about to go into? And I love that kind of evolution of the show throughout it because what's more inspiring and you know, when, when you're in the, in the middle of it. Where do you sit in terms of writing brand new material versus pulling out the jokes or the, the, the old stuff that you know works every single time? Oh, it could be really tempting just to do old stuff. And if you're doing like a set in a club or at a, a pub or something, you, you always go with your old gold, your, your tried and tested stuff. But with a festival show, you always want to do new stuff because, you know, hopefully you've got people coming back year after year and so you want to give them something new. But what like what I found with this show is that because I've been doing loads of Zoom gigs after, over the last two years, I've been working up little bits of material and so I can put them throughout and then they're kind of the safe part where the new material will go in between. So you kind of, you've got enough of a structure or you can place your material in a way that you kind of keep you all safe that there will be jokes. We're not sure whether this is a joke yet. It could just be some sentences, but we'll put that between two things I know that you'll love. 
Writing is also one of your expressions. You're a, you're a children's author. You've got two books called George and the Great Bum Stampede and and George and the Great Brain Swappery. Was did you have as much write, fun writing the books as the titles sound? Um, yes, it was lovely kind of serendipity. I got approached by Scholastic to see if I would be interested in writing something for them that, that was sort of based on an idea that they'd had. And so I gave them a sample or like a chapter of what they'd suggested. But I said, also, I've got these characters called the Peppertons that I've been telling my son kids stories every night for the last couple of years. And so they ended up saying, well, why don't you do that? And I came up with the idea of having a family to tell stories about to my son because it meant that I didn't have to think up a whole new set of characters every night. So we would lie on his bed when he was little and I'd tell him, I'd ask him what he wanted the Peppertons to do today and he would tell me, it was always going to the Lego shop, but, he, but he'd tell me what he wanted to happen with the Peppertons and then I could tell him a story about that. And so when it came time to write the book, I knew the characters really well and they, well, they also work really well read aloud because they started off as stories spoken stories and the other thing that I really loved was that uh, an old school old school friend of mine did the illustrations Sarah Davis who's amazing and has won lots of awards for her kids books and I I was so excited to work with her because she absolutely got what I had in mind in terms of what the characters look like and it was just really lovely like a little full circle moment because I remember at high school going you know she's an incredible artist like how I wonder what she's going to do and then to come back and be able to to um, have her create what the characters look like was just really special. You are a writer and a storyteller and you've written for a number of shows. Recently you were invited to join the, the writing team for the 2022 BAFTA Awards Ceremony, uh, writing with and for Rebel Wilson, I understand, so tell me if I'm wrong. But what's how is it different to uh, writing for yourself when you're writing for someone else? Um, it's different because it's a different voice so so rebel has a completely different style to me and uh she really really knows i don't want to say her brand because that makes it sound cynical but she absolutely knows who she is on stage and because i was sort of familiar with that it wasn't it wasn't hard writing for her like it was still you know there were parameters and things of like we need jokes about presenters or a little five minute monologue at the top sort of thing and also because we'd worked together before I felt like I knew her well enough to suggest things and also the the other good thing of that thing of like collaboration is that and not having a big ego is that it doesn't matter if your stuff gets thrown out like you, you just sort of pitch ideas and jokes and if they don't work they don't work and there's no point getting offended about it or upset about it because you're all just working together for the common goal, which is to make this five-minute spot or this link as funny as it can be. And it was a, it was just such, such a lovely last-minute highlight that happened. I We'd been doing stuff over, online, to, you know, like – why can't why, I don't know why I'm finding it so difficult to describe things. We were doing stuff, uh, collaborating over email and – then at the last minute, she was like, do you want to come just to, you know, in case anything happens last minute that, that, you know, we can come up with some new stuff. And so all of a sudden I went to London and it was absolutely surreal to be somewhere else again after two years of just being in Melbourne of going, oh, London is still real. Like it was, that was a really lovely thing. And also just to be at the BAFTAs was amazing. It was amazing. It was so great standing backstage, kind of poised if, if anything happened or to give feedback on how it was going or whatever. But then there's just all of, you know, 
there's all of these amazing actors just coming back to get their their BAFTAs that they have to present to the next winner. Like it was just, it was quite magical. It was great. It was really lovely. Like just an unexpected treat. And and how bizarre to also go from doing Adelaide Fringe to then being in London and suddenly the biggest thing that I was focusing on wasn't the comedy festival. It was something else entirely. And it was, yeah, it was, I, I feel it was like, I, I sort of felt it was a little bit like a pretty woman moment, but I didn't have to sleep with anyone. Like it was just this kind of, I just got this this delightful, oh, I'm allowed to go to all, all the places that the people, the, the exciting people are. Like it was, you know, standing standing uh, and watching Dame Shirley Bassey rehearsing Diamonds Are Forever the day before the BAFTAs was amazing. Just like I, I love being in the backstage of things. I love seeing all the... The stuff that the non-glamorous stuff, but the the kind of the stuff that you don't see out front. You see all this magical stuff out front with all the you know beautiful stage and everything like that. And I love being backstage where there's a like a low hanging pipe that's got some sponge gaffer taped around it, so you don't bang your head. Like I like I love that kind of the nothing is glamorous backstage. Like I mean, the Royal Albert Hall is pretty great backstage, but it's never as plush and luxurious as people imagine. I ma- yeah, I imagine the energy but that juxtaposition of, you know, the glamour, the red carpet, but also the <laughs> the gaffer tape around around the, around the piping um and amazing to be to be over there. If I take you now from the the red carpet to the jungle, you mentioned before that you were been recently part of the Australian TV show I'm a celebrity get me out of here. I have read that you describe yourself as someone who has an aversion to the outdoors. So what was the drive behind saying yes to being on the show? I've said no a lot of times. And then uh, this time it was in the, it was, you know, during one of the many lockdowns that we had. And part of it was, oh, it'd be nice to have a gig. And then the other part of it was the world is so completely bonkers. Why not do something else that's completely bonkers? Like why not, why not, kind of take a risk and do something completely outside your comfort zone. Like literally I hate camping. I hate camping and I hate having to meet lots of strangers. And that was exactly the two things that I had to do. Um, And I loved it. I just, I loved it, loved it, loved it. I was so surprised. I thought I was going to endure it until I got out. And then by the second morning, I was like, oh no, I'd like to, I would like to live here forever. Like I just loved I loved meeting all of these people that I didn't know, people that I would never have a reason to hang around with otherwise. And now I have all of these amazing friends. It just Yeah, it just turned into this thing. Like the thing that I had been, that I had always sworn I would never do just turned out to be the best thing I could have done. I just surprised myself with how resilient I was with everything. I, I you know, I, I ate things that I was never dream of eating which I will never eat again but it was really interesting to go oh well I can do it I can do it yeah it was just this I just felt so grateful for it I'd wake up every morning go I can't believe that I'm here and all we have to do today is is make friends and maybe one of us will get vomited on like it was such a um it was this weird juxtaposition of profound conversations and then huntsman sandwiches so it's just it just it was just bizarre but then the, the and the whole thing about how you do this gross thing to earn stars because you wanted to feed your catmates. And it was amazing how much that mattered. Like like straight away you were like, oh, yeah, I want to feed everybody, so I'm going to have to eat this turkey testicle. Like ridiculous, ridiculous, but just so much fun. And 
And we had this, when, when you make friends as an adult, it normally takes months to, to get to know someone because you might meet at a gig or you meet at a, a work function, function or something and then you spend an hour together and then you're like, oh, we should have coffee in a couple of weeks. And so you do that and it's a really kind of incremental process of getting to know each other. And all we had to do was get to know each other all of the time. And so like I've always watched reality TV before and when someone gets voted out of something and other people are crying, I'm like, oh, why would you cry over that? And then you get into doing that and someone falls down and nearly hits their head and you're like, oh, I'm so upset. Like it just, like it's, it's just so much more, um, the connections are so much greater than I anticipated. And yeah, now I have this weird new family of friends that live all over the place and do things that I don't do. Yeah, and just and I just went from going, oh, this is something I'm going to have to endure to going, I'm just so grateful that I got this opportunity to do something so bizarre and so wonderful and so, yeah, just so weird and, and to reconnect with them. I feel what I feel is I feel like I've joined a cult with terrible catering. I just, I, I get all excited when I talk about it and I could just bang on for ages about it because it just, it was so unexpected to me how much I got. I kept going, you've given me a gift. You don't realize what a gift you've given me. And it really was just the gift was to make my make me push myself out of my comfort zone and just deal with what was happening. Like I had no deadlines to meet. I had nothing else to do except just be in the camp. And I just loved it. You mentioned before we hit record that it, it had a profound impact on you and you've just described a, a piece of that. What did you learn about yourself through the process? Well, like I, like I said, that I'm much more resilient than I had imagined. And just that I've, I have spent a lot of time stopping myself doing things for tiny reasons. So it, it really made me really um, reflect on, you know, why I say no to things like, oh, no, I couldn't do that. And the, and the reason might be, oh, no, I, I, I couldn't go and – I couldn't do – I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. I snore and I'd be so embarrassed if I snored and people heard me snore. Like like stupid little things like that, which now I go, oh, that doesn't matter. So other people snore. Like just the, the, ways, the ways that I've held myself back – for tiny reasons that I didn't need to do. That, I think, has been the biggest lesson for me of just going, you know, like we were talking before about how you just say yes to everything and that that I have done a lot of, oh, I have a small discomfort about some area of this thing, so maybe I'm going to say no to it as opposed to just going, yep, let's see what happens. So it felt, it felt like a real reset. And it also made me really um, aware that, I do judge people on how they look or what they do. So like, like normally I, would, um, I wouldn't I would be drawn to talking to Miss Universe Australia. Like I'd probably go, that we're not going to be similar people. Like I've never thought beauty pageants were great. And then Maria was the most incredible, switched on, intelligent, driven, ambitious, funny woman. And I was so, I'm so glad to have met her and to go, oh, yeah, no, I have prejudices against stuff as well. Or like, you know, why would I want to talk to a retired footy coach? What, Whatever would I have in common with him? And now I've got this lovely friend that has just, you know, he's just a, this, the person that I had seen in the papers or or on TV, like like having made the same mistake that everyone makes in that the thing that you see on screen is the whole person. It was a real reminder to go oh no just take people at face value and let them show you who they are 
It's an interesting comment, I think, for for all of us around kind of broadening our connections or perspectives because we've all got them. We've all got those kind of blind spots. And I guess my, my head goes, and you probably talked a bit about it already, but what was it about that environment that that means that you are so close so quickly where you are crying or upset because someone falls down or they they leave? Is it the challenges that you've got to go through? Is it the fact that you just completely rely on each other? Is it the sense of gratitude that we, you know, all of those labels and titles are kind of stripped away and you you are eating testicles together? (laughs) What do you think it was? Um, I think it's, I, I think it's that you're all having this experience together that is so bizarre and inexplicable like you you've all put like no one no one there was like oh, I'm gonna romp this in. it's gonna be easy like everyone was there nervous to having said yes to this weird thing you're all dressed the same so you're not making any preconception you don't, you don't have preconceptions about someone because of the way they dress because we're, we're all wearing extremely unflattering khaki clothes and you just do this weird thing that no one else will understand it's like when you do a show like if you do like a another theatre analogy for, for for me but when you do a show together or if you do like if you go on a conference together and something weird happens like you're kind of bonded with those people because they have had a shared experience with you that you can't ever quite explain to someone else so you're kind of you're bonded by the fact that you've all been covered in snakes or you stole some food from during a challenge and now you get a brick for dinner like you you just the, the constant kind of bombardment of just weird stuff that you don't do every day just bonds you together yeah it's just it kind of strips away everything else and all you have to do is exist in that moment together and it's really intense because you 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 know nothing nothing to distract you from what's happening there's no you can't read anything you can't go on the internet you're sleeping in a bunk like it's you're just pushed off kilter I think and the people with you are the people that make you feel safe I guess doing something that's just so bonkers that uh the lesson of connection but also that just say yes and where have I held myself back as being something that you will move into you know take take with you forward one of the things that often I'm really interested in this podcast we talk about living boldly amongst the busyness and a big part of that is managing your own energy being able to be all in in whatever you're doing and rather than kind of turn up exhausted how have you whether over your kind of career I guess navigated the things that you've said no to and the things that you've said yes to What helps you make that decision and what helps you then to have the energy to be all in when you're doing things? Um, The the second answer is naps. It's always naps. You just have to have a nap in the afternoon and then you can do a great show, but you have to have a nap. Uh, And as to saying no to things, that's a skill that I am still learning. Often over my career, I've said yes, because I've felt obligated to to do stuff and then just hated doing it and you know it's a weird thing that I've noticed is often if you do charity gigs they kind of take you for granted a little bit like if you do something for free they act like you are worth no money as opposed to when when someone pays for you they kind of you, you want to give them their money's worth and they are aware that that's how much your skills cost and so I've said yes to lots of things which I have bitterly regretted saying yes to and finally a couple of years ago I can't even remember where I read this, but the phrase choose discomfort over resentment 
really resonated with me so much of going, if you say no now, it's going to feel awkward, but then you're not going to be angry in a week's time because previous you said yes to an awful gig. So I really, that's the thing I have to keep practicing is just going, as much as say yes to everything, stop saying yes to the things that don't add value to your life. The other thing that I've learned to do is that if people ask me to do a gig as a favour and they they go, you know, how how much are you kind of thing, I've, I choose to do things for free now if it's something that resonates with me, but I don't do discounts. It's either, you know, unless it's something really worthwhile, but I tend to just go, I can do that for you for free if it's someone, you know, that I'm connected to because that could, that's my contribution to something positive. But it, yeah, the money side of things is really awkward and I have a manager who takes care of that stuff because I know that I'm not good at it. I'm not good with admin. I'm not good with putting a price on myself. So I have a great manager that looks after that for me. But yeah, learning to say no is still, and that no is a complete sentence. That's the other thing is that you can just say, no, sorry. And you don't have to offer up a reason or whatever. And that that has been the, the thing, I think, the biggest thing for me to learn as well as stop stopping yourself over tiny things is to just start saying no when you don't want to do it or it's going to be awful or just and that it's fine you don't have to say yes to everything what a contradiction what a what a what a contradictory uh set of statements I've made say yes to everything don't say yes to anything (laughs) well I guess it's that sense of obligation versus where am I saying no to kind of hold me back and so it's the intention that sits behind it and uh, I completely agree and I love that sense that no is a full complete sentence I've certainly caught myself where it's almost like I've got to come up with the right excuse that's legitimate enough for me to walk away from this so just say no is completely okay you you are coming into into festival season your your show is I've gone to a lot of trouble coming into Melbourne Comedy Festival and Brisbane Comedy Festival I know it's kind of awkward to kind of put yourself out there but where can people sign up where where can they come and see you um, in terms of those festivals um, well, uh, follow me on Instagram. I'm Calbo Wilson on Instagram and the details will be on there, but also comedyfestival.com.au for Melbourne Festival tickets and yeah, Instagram for the other the other dates and places is probably the best place. Um, there will be a lot of cat photos to navigate through, but the information will be there. And the excitement that festival season is coming back, which I think is just so amazing for, you know, comedy but performances as well um, over the last couple of years that we've had. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. Uh, it's been such a delight chatting with you, Cal, but when I offer up that term, when you hear that term, Standout Life, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Um, it means living to the edges of who you are and living authentically, which is sometimes really hard But yeah, just being you, you're the best person at being you and you're filling a niche that no one else fills. So just being bold and being authentic. Thank you so much, Cal. Love chatting with you. Pleasure. Thank you. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. 
If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.